0: Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker.
1: Mobile hunters, the king of comfort has arrived. Go to tetherednation.com and check out the new Lockdown Saddle. Over the past two years, Tethered has tested and refined a new approach to their saddle lineup. The Lockdown Saddle takes the best-in-class features from the Phantom, like the Utili bridge, comfort channels, and included an expandable saddle body with their Lockdown Link construction to take saddle hunting to the next level of comfort. As if this wasn't enough, they developed Lockdown Haulers, which has a slightly rigid internal frame structure, so you can easily unzip, zip, and access Haulers with one hand. And if you're a guy like me with no junk in your trunk and have issues with your saddle staying put while you're walking in to hunt, the Lockdown Modular Yoke solves this problem. Whether you're new to saddle hunting or an old tree climbing veteran, go to tetherednation.com for all your saddle hunting gear. Welcome to the Truth Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host Clint Campbell and you're listening to episode number 357. Today I'm joined by my buddy Hunter Hogan to talk mature buck factors and why you shouldn't waste time hunting when you can scout. So stay tuned. all right all right what is up everyone happy wednesday to you hope you're doing well hope you are feeling fine if you are in the states that had the cold front blow through this past weekend i hope that you were able to get out and enjoy it it's always nice when you get those mm, earlier season or early october cold fronts it just almost feels like it extends the the good the good stuff if you will right like we always like to have them whenever they when you get to the end of october um to kind of coincide with you know, the, 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 pre-rut timing, scrape activity, just, you know, big bucks getting, getting fired up and starting to get up on their feet a little bit more often and so forth. Uh, but man, I really do enjoy, you know, whenever you get those cold snaps earlier in the season, especially during this, you know, kind of quote unquote lull time period where you just probably don't have as many people out in the woods, you know, cause they're, they're waiting themselves for prime time to get kicked off. And, um, it can be exceptionally good this time of year. If, uh, if you play your cards right. And uh, so this past weekend I was able to, I mean, it rained. It was, it was you know, PA again for those non-PA hunters. We can't hunt on Sundays except for a handful of them during the course of the season that they've outlined. Um, so, you know, there was no sun, Sunday hunting, which was a real bummer because the the weather was just choice that day after the front kind of rolled through the temps, took a nice nosedive, um, you know, had kind of a nice, like, cloudy, bright blue sky, like just, you know, the day that you – would ultimately want to be in a tree. Um, if Even if you don't see deer, it's just a beautiful day. Like You want to just be outside in it. Um, but anyway, it rained all day Saturday. Um, and so what my plan was is, you know, I really haven't hunted, not even that I really, but I haven't hunted at all um, local to me um, only because, you know, again, I kind of told myself I was going to you know, make a play on the North piece pretty much every weekend, just spend time up there, you know, truck camping and so forth. So I knew the weather was going to suck in the morning. It was going to just be a pisser all morning. So I basically, you know, slept in my own bed. Um, And then, you know, when I got up in the morning, took care of some things I needed to take care of, and then jumped in the truck and made the couple hour drive um, north um, and wanted to time it to where I'd get there about the time, you know, not before the rain stopped, but to give me enough time to get there, you know, get changed in the truck. And then as the rain was kind of slowing down, be able to start to head into the timber because I had a great wind for the the place I wanted to go set up on um, for access, especially. And uh, so that's what I did. You know, I ended up getting there, I don't know, sometime probably like a little bit before one o'clock. The rain was supposed to start to slow down a little bit, you know, sometime around two. And so I think I ended up, you know, I, I timed it well, got out and into a tree. I want to say about like three o'clock. And the rain kind of stopped and and um, you know it was still you know overcast and a little bit windy. I would have I would have liked it further to have been just a little bit more wind. I had a nice stiff wind walking in, but it was, seemed like when I once I got into the tree, you know, I would get some, you know, moments or periods of like a good constant wind, and then um and then would it kind of died down and it it'd almost be, you know, somewhat variable, which you know isn't isn't ideal. And set up in this little area that has this this draw um kind of, uh, I guess I'll, I'll use the word draw for it. It's not super deep. It's just like a depression and, uh, kind of set up there because it was a little bit open to a degree. Um, you know, or at least there was a more light kind of getting into that spot, so to speak. And, uh, as I was checking my wind, especially once I got into the tree, it was kind of doing what I wanted it to do, which the thermals in that spot was kind of helped me out a little bit, kind of going more straight up to kind of buy me a little bit more uh, grace, uh, in terms of playing the wind. And, uh, had a really good sit. Um, you know, I knew there was a couple of good deer in that general area. Um, and, uh, as I, as I was sitting there, you know, early on, I heard like a, I heard a doe blow. Um, basically as soon as I got in there, which was odd because she w- wasn't very close. Um, and my wind was really good and she certainly wasn't going to see me. There's just so much foliage in there and stuff like that. Um, and so I wasn't sure I was like, well, you know, maybe something else bumped her, you know, wasn't sure what, what it might've been. And then uh, shortly after that, I heard like two grunts um, behind me and they sounded like they were about in the same general area and they were like loud grunts to the point to where I actually thought it might have been a person. Um, But with the weather being as shitty as it is and this place being as big as it is, chances of there being someone on top of me, you know, close enough that I could hear them grunting, uh, probably weren't real high. Not only that, but usually my experience has been like when you get someone who wants to hammer the grunt tube you know, early October, they usually just don't hit it once and stop. <laughs> you know, So it was like two grunts back to back and then that was it. And then there was nothing. And so after it kind of shut off for a while, I realized it was probably a, a buck that was back there, probably bumped that door, not bumping her from a chasing standpoint, but just, you know, in the same area, he probably didn't like it, whatever the case was, maybe trying to run her off or something. I don't, I don't know. Um, so I just assumed that that's why she had blown. And then I'm assuming the same two does kind of worked their way around, and they ended up milling out in front of me. It's um, about 25 yards or so, and they spent probably about 40 minutes just in this area, you know, browsing um, and munching on, you know, just uh, the browse that's in the area. And I watched them for a little while, and then you know, I'm, I'm in the canopy. There's still plenty of leaves and cover um, in the timber this time time of year. So it's, you know, and it's kind of overcast and stuff like that. So, you know, I was losing light probably earlier than, um, one would expect, um, you know, to lose, to lose light. And so I couldn't see my pins any longer and those does kind of moved on. And so I was like, before I get covered up with more deer, I'm going to go ahead and slip out of the tree. And then like the access route that I had on my way in, like I knew there was some light, you know, I wasn't necessarily under tree cover the whole way. So I'd probably be able to see, and and there were, some cuts kind of in the general area that if, you know, if I took a certain route, I could make my way by those. And so my plan was really just to kind of walk by those, get to a high point, you know, and near some of them and and do some glass and just see if I could maybe see some deer come out. Could I find one of the target or one of the bucks I have on camera, you know, coming out into one of these to feed or something like that. And at the same time I was like, you know, hell, who knows? I was like, I might get lucky. I was like, if if I go slow and I creep, you know, just kind of creep up to the edges of these things, you know, to where I can see, you know, I might find a buck and I have enough light. If I have enough light, maybe I can make a play on one, you know, a little, uh, I know it's not common in PA, but maybe I can put it on a stock. Um, so that's what I did. And so I got to the first two cuts that I knew that I was going to kind of go by and was creeping, you know, scoped them, glassed them, didn't see anything. You know, there's a, there's a couple of them kind of along the way. And, um, as I made my way through, I kind of got preoccupied as I was walking and I got to like the next, um, I guess it was kind of like the last cut before I was going to be, you know, kind of close to the truck. Um, and, uh, I just kind of forgot. I was, uh, I was, you know, thinking about the hunt and kind of planning the hunt for the following weekend and stuff like that in my mind. And I just kind of was like, Oh, I was like, I'm already at that other cut. And, you know, so I slowed down and I looked and to my right was a shooter buck standing. So I got down behind like the, um, there's a little embankment there and there was like, uh, some, you know, just some brush that was kind of like on the edge of the bank. And so I, I slipped down behind those and, um, you know, and I had assumed that he had probably heard me, you know, certainly didn't smell me. My wind was, my wind was on point. Um, so that wasn't going to be an issue. Um, and there was plenty of wind too. So I thought he, he may have not heard me. And so I made the mistake of and when I saw him, I knew he was close. I knew he was within 30 yards. I knew he was within, you know, shootable range. And so in hindsight, I should have, you know, I should have drew and then stood up and and been able to get a shot. Um, but the reality was, was that I wanted to take one peek real quick just to kind of confirm what I thought was the distance. And when I did, uh, he was looking in my direction and saw me kind of, crest the the tips of the the brush that i was kind of nestled in behind if i would have just stayed crouched he probably would have just went back to feeding you know um but i got greedy and uh you know learned uh, another val another valuable lesson you know would it have worked out i don't know hell i don't know you know but he was within bow range um and i just didn't play my cards the best uh the best that i could have to give him myself to get to have given myself a chance Uh, But nonetheless, it was cool to see, you know, a shooter buck, you know, second hunt on that particular piece. You know, this is the third year on, on the piece in general. I've not really hunted this piece at all, right? Not even, not really. I've not hunted the piece at all until the previous weekend. And then this past weekend, so two different hunts, Um, you know, and I've, uh, I've, I've seen deer, I've seen a shooter. um, And I did end up seeing another doe as, as well. So I ended up seeing three does in a, And a good buck on the, on the day. So I will take that for the second hunt on this piece. And, uh, yeah, man, cold fronts, you know, cold fronts in October. Um, love them, you know, can't get enough of them. And I'm, uh, looking forward to getting back, uh, back up there. I'm not this coming weekend. I got some, uh, some family stuff going on this coming weekend. I'll be able to get out locally probably in the morning. Uh, But then after that, you know, I should be up there, probably going to take a little time off and try to spend a couple solid days up there before I leave for Kansas. So that's kind of the update from the timber. Um, With that, we'll go ahead and get jumped into today's show. Have my buddy Hunter Hogan on. Hunter is from Missouri and is just a killer. Um, He's part of a group of guys that I've had on the podcast between him, Jace Allen, and Austin. Um, They're all kind of a crew, and there's there's another friend of theirs they all kind of hunt with. And they're all, you know, what I'll say, just like younger guys, you know, younger than me, we'll say. Um, and they're just killers, man. They just get after it. And, and, and Hunter's just one of those guys that you, that is just, you know, at least it's rare for me in terms of, of meeting them. Um, you know, he's been kind of brought up on how to hunt mature bucks. A lot of people kind of maybe learn that later in life. You know, maybe they're brought up in like uh, Pennsylvania where it's a lot of gun hunting tradition and not so much mature deer hunting per se. And Hunter's kind of been taught the ways of mature deer hunting since he was since he was young, and so I don't want to say it's necessarily like second nature for him, but he's damn good at it. And uh filled a bunch of tags last year. He's got a killer YouTube channel. He's dropping videos, so if you're you know want to check those out, check check out the Hunter Hogan um YouTube channel as well. So without further ado, we'll go ahead and jump into today's show. And as always, thank you all for listening. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. And today I got on it's like I've had a run on Missouri guys, man. I've had, I have my buddy Hunter Hogan on now. I've been a long, a long while. I've want to have you on. We've got a couple mutual friends, but I've had, I've had Jason. And then your other buddy's name is slipping my mind that hunts with you and Jace too. I had him on in the past.
2: Austin Culverson.
1: Austin. Yeah, that's it. Austin. Um, and then yep. I also had on, man, this, my age is showing here. I just had it on another fella from Missouri, like four weeks ago, I think. And so it's like, I feel like I'm tied into Missouri. Like I feel like, yeah, I feel like I'm almost like an honorable, uh, like an honorable, uh, resident of Missouri now at this point.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you got a, we've, we've got a pretty tight knit group, me, Austin and Jason, and a gentleman named Charles Golson. That's kind of our Mm -hmm. four person squad of public land hunters. Um, here in like nice. northern missouri so you've got three out nice. of the four of us yeah. now
1: <laughs> nice awesome and uh justin wright that's the other guy i was thinking of from missouri that i had on um okay. i met him through uh actually joe rentmeister and i know he's good friends with like, andy may and stuff like that and so i've had him on and missouri is like one of my favorite states to hunt like it's one of the places i've been i just really enjoyed the state enjoyed the people and so i'm looking forward to getting back but man how you been dude how are things
2: Good. Um, Just uh, ready to get back in the stand. Actually, I've been, let's see, what's today? The 27th. So I tagged out like 10 10 or 11 days ago. And uh, I've been working ever since to kind of make some funds up to afford the next state. So I've been itching to be back in the tree. But yeah, just been working towards getting ready for the next hunt.
1: Nice, man. Yeah. It's like, I feel, feel terrible for you, man. Tagging out early. You know, poor saps like me that usually have to go all the way through the, <laughs> the late season. <laughs>
2: yeah. 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 But Yeah. It's a warm, cold feeling for sure. Yeah, that's right.
1: Nice, nice problems so. to have, but, uh, Man, before we jump into everything, dude, um, I always just kind of like to break the ice and let people out there know who are listening, you know, a little bit about you. So they kind of get a sense of like where you're from and your background. So if you wouldn't mind, man, just give a little bit of like a cliff notes version of who you are, where you're from, you know, and what you do for a living.
2: Um, yeah, my name's Hunter Hogan and I'm 25 years old, I live in um, north central Missouri. And I've grown up in Missouri my whole life been bow hunting pretty much my whole life ever since i was like five years old my dad was carrying me up in the tree with him and i'd sit on the platform between his feet and uh you know just kind of experience the hunting and uh i didn't really get that serious into bow hunting until the last like four years or so i was more into like the tournament archery side of things um i've always bow hunted some but um kind of worked my way up through the ranks in tournament archery and went into the uh, professional league three years ago. Um, And then I met Levi Morgan through that, and he offered me a position on his team with Bow Life, and so I kind of started getting into the filming hunts and stuff. Um, I've never had any private land to hunt, so I just had to do the best I could with what I had on public. And so just been working really hard for the last three or four years on hunting public land and, uh, filming hunts and doing what I can. So.
1: Nice. Awesome, man. Yeah. The, uh, you guys got some good, you know, good public land in in Missouri too. I've been able to kind of make a trip there and I've, I think I hunted three different pieces of public in six days that were all like, I don't know, something like, hour to two hours away from each other i just kind of hopped around until i found a spot that didn't have Mm -hmm. didn't have a you know a ton of pressure necessarily i mean there was still pressure but i found a little kind of hidey hole that was uh where i could carve out a little spot for myself but that's kind of wild man that you um you know that the tournament archery thing kind of was like your your focus initially you know so what kind of i guess what what tripped your trigger to kind of jump into like hunting more kind of full force. Cause when you started off saying your dad was taking you, putting you in the stand, like in between his feet and stuff, I was like, Oh dude, this guy's been sh- flinging carbon at, at deer since he could crawl essentially. And then you're like, but I didn't get real serious yeah, about I, it until, you know, a couple of years ago.
2: Right. Right. Yeah. I, well, yeah, I think my version of serious is probably a little different than <laughs> most people. Whenever I When I say like serious about, I mean, like literally go self-employed and take three or four months off to hunt as much as possible and work overtime in the summer. That's what I meant by get serious. But, uh, for years before that, yeah, I I, I go hunted consistently. I mean, it was, uh, it was as much as I could around like a regular time job and stuff like that. Um, but that transition that I'm talking about is, is like doing it as full-time as I can, you know, you still got to work and earn and all that stuff, but uh, yeah, I'm, I uh, I grew up hunting in, like, southern Missouri, which, uh, if you've hunted Missouri much, like, kind of the southern half of the state is, I, I believe there's a lot of different, different, like, subspecies of whitetail and stuff, and pretty much down in the southern part of the state, if you shoot, like, a 140 to 150-inch deer, you've really done something, you know. And uh, then mm-hmm. like four or five years ago, I moved up to the northern half of the state and experienced a lot bigger bucks than I've ever seen before, <laughs> or, or you know, even knew were in Missouri. And so that really tripped my trigger on getting serious about that. And um, this deer that I just killed um, a week ago was one of the first, you know animals that got me into that which that was like a four-year quest overall but like he was an absolute giant his five-year-old year and i i took it really serious when i found him over the summer and patterned him and hunted him and stuff and uh yeah that that was a big factor of of uh my transition into you know doing it hardcore
1: right So, I mean, it sounds like your dad kind of introduced you. Like, it was like a family, like birthright thing. Like you were going to hunt regard. I mean, with a, with a name like Hunter, I kind (laughs) of felt like it was in the cards. Yeah. yeah. You know, that was, it's kind of, it's kind of like like when the, the hippie parents name their kid, like Sequoia or something, you know what I mean? Like,
2: (laughs) yeah, yeah, it's, uh it was kind of manifested. Yeah. He's a, my dad's a real, really good, uh, big buck hunter. And that's kind of something that he taught me from the get go is, you know, you've got deer hunters and you've got big buck hunters and it's, it's almost like hunting a whole different species. It's two different games to play. Um, and Mm -hmm. there's, I have a lot of respect for, for both sides of that game. But, um, if you're going to hunt like big, mature, uh, smart whitetail, then there's a lot more factors that go into it a lot more of a chess game and stuff so i kind of started from the get-go being introduced into that you know watching your scent control tuning your bow for long range like access mobile hunting i i literally grew up i know mobile hunting's like been a thing for the last three to five years now as far as popularity but like i've been mobile hunting from the get-go we would take screw in steps and gorilla tree stands and we would find a tree and climb it. And that's how I grew up hunting. I mean, a pocket full of screw in steps and, and a gorilla stand. So, um, right. We we're hunting kind of smaller tracks of private. So I wasn't using that on public land just to be <laughs> clear, but, uh, right. Yeah. So and that's, that's something I started in from the get go, you know,
1: but what do you think? Cause I mean, that's, that's cool that you were able to grow up with that. You know, that's, um, you know, a lot of people who grow up in hunting families, you know, for example, like I grew up, you know, hunted since I was a kid, you know, just Pennsylvania, big heritage state. So you're going to, you're going to go hunt, you know, if you're, if you're a boy, essentially. And, um, you know, yeah. it'll start early, you know, but it's very much still a, a state, you know, at least the, you know, the folks I grew up with, my dad, and my uncles, and stuff like that, where, it was just deer hunting, essentially, you know, is what it was. There was no, you know, we didn't have a lot of big bucks around. So there wasn't really big buck hunting necessarily, you know. Um, and so for me, right, you know, I, I probably learned a lot of really bad habits. Oh, well, I know I did, just like learning that, you know, my hunting from that kind of approach, right? And so it's interesting, yeah. you know, I don't get to talk to too many people who it's like, they grew up with that like big buck kind of hunting was like the the pursuit, so to speak. And so when you think, when you think back on it, you know, what is like, if you had to narrow down like one thing that your old man taught you where you're like, man, it, this one thing, if nothing else, this one thing that he taught me is like the, like the stake to put into the ground. If I didn't know anything else, this one thing that he, you know, bestowed upon me would put me in the right direction. What would that, what would that thing be
2: in your opinion? Um I guess I would have to kind of summarize it into one factor overall, which is like the seriousness of taking a like what a big buck is capable of um so, and what I mean by that is like there's a lot of people that are like, uh, I don't really have the right win so I'm but I'm gonna hunt anyways, you know or like, um i don't think a big buck will do that or is willing to do that such as bed in a certain area that he's not getting pressured or um or well i don't think you know walking in with a headlight is going to affect anything or um you know if i make a little more noise or if i drive my four-wheeler around my property that's a big one uh i mean just all these factors of like i don't think that's going to affect a whitetail well to a big mature buck it, it does whether you want to accept it or not. And I know a lot of people just will not accept that that's a factor, but it really is. And you can see it in the success rate of the people who take that um, seriously and the people who don't. So I think that was kind of like the main factor of like, if if there's something we can do for an edge, we we do it. Like if we can walk in without a headlight, we're going to do that. Or if, you know, if we have to have one, we're going to have like a really low red light or something. Um, if the wind's not right, we're not going to hunt that tree. Um, you know, we're not going to be driving vehicles and shining lights or driving side by sides and four wheelers through a property. We're not going to get into a bedding area unless we kind of know what's going on and ready to kill in there. And I don't know all those factors together is something that he really taught me from the beginning of, uh, taking every step you can to, have the upper hand on a buck
1: right that's awesome man it's like it's it's that uh control what you can control type of thing it's like if it's within yeah, your power to exactly. to control it you know it's worth it's worth the extra effort or the extra five minutes or whatever the case is to try to
2: put yourself in the best position you know yeah absolutely
1: nice yeah because a lot of those things are small details right man it's like it's a, uh, it's not the big, like, um, everyone wants to know, like, you know, for example, you know, um, what's the secret to finding buck bedding, right? Like that's always a big one, right? Like you talk about buck beds, man, like you do a podcast on buck beds and I promise you, like, it'll do the best numbers that like any of your podcasts will do like, right. Like that's just like, cause people yeah. want to know what the right. secret is. Right. And, but the reality is, is yeah. like, you know, and I've done enough of these podcasts, it's like every guy who's good at what, good at killing you know, mature deer. The secret is it's the details. It's the stuff that you don't want to think about yeah. that. You don't want to spend time thinking, thinking about yeah. And it's the stuff that you don't want to do is the, are the secrets. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're not sexy. You yeah. know what I mean? It's like, no, big bucks they're not so exciting. High.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. So. Everyone wants the yeah, sexy, exactly. like I mean, magic, magic bullet.
2: Yeah. Everybody wants the top secret, but it's like, man, all those, it's those little details, especially on public land bucks, like Missouri has good public land, but it also has a lot of pressure. Like we have people walk under our sets every morning and every evening, all times of the year, you know, and it's like, there's never not pressure there. And so these big bucks, if they live to maturity on public land, they're living off of people not doing the small details, you know, it's like most people are, are decent hunters, you know, to where they can at least engage in a chess game against a big buck. But it's, it's those little factors that give that big buck just enough upper hand or advantage to survive another year, you know, and that's, that's how they reach maturity there. And every year that they survive, the better they get at it. So it's like, those small details have become more and more important to me. And, you know, I like, people joke around with us and stuff like me and Dylan love to wear. Hey dudes, whitetail hunting, you know, it's like kind of a fun little (laughs) deal that we post about all the time of like wearing, Hey dudes. But in, in reality, I like, I have a reason for it. They're dead silent when we're walking and accessing in. And, um, I mean when I'm hunting a buck in, in his bed, which, a lot of the whitetail we've killed in the last two years, we've literally set up our stands and set within shooting distance of the buck. And when he stands up, we kill him. And so like that little factor is really important to me of like being a little extra quiet or like I invest in some of the highest in mobile hunting gear. And I make sure my stuff is like stealth wrapped and I take my time and I get really good. I run like buckleless straps um, or am steel and stuff just to eliminate more noise just to make sure that's not a factor whenever it comes to it so i don't know scent control we do like ozone and and scent thief and stuff and it's like yeah maybe these factors don't matter every time but it just takes one little detail of him catching on to you to to blow that hunt you know so we're trying to control every factor that we can like you're saying
1: yeah it's funny that you mentioned Hey Dudes because there was a hunt, I forget what it was, it might have been three years ago, and I I was trying to get out after work and get a hunt in, and um, so I wrapped up whatever meeting I had, and I was like, sweet, jetted out around 3.30, enough times, about a half hour to drive to the one place that I wanted to hunt, and I was like, all right, I'm going to get to about four, and this is like, my season comes in um, probably around the same time Missouri's Missouri, that's like middle of September usually, um, special regs unit mm-hmm. for me in my area. And, um, and yeah. so I was like, all right, it's going to get dark around seven or something like that. And I was like, so if I can get out there by in, in, in the spot or general area that I want to be in by 30, like I'll have like a couple hours, like a two and a half hour sit, you know, for, you know, with shooting light. And so I ran out the door super quick, jumped in my truck, took off and got to like the spot, you know, where I parked my truck and was like, Got out and was like getting all my gear. It's like in my tote in the back of my truck. I'm putting everything on and I'm like looking for my boots. I'm like, look, I'm looking for my hikers, you know. And I'm like, damn, man. I was like, where are my hikers at? And I, like I left my boots at home, and I and I was wearing yeah. like a pair of like black slip on Van skate shoes. You know what I mean? Like because that's what I usually yeah. wear. Like whenever I'm you know just going out or whatever. And I was like, well, I'm just gonna wear it because it wasn't wet or anything like that. No, the area is a little swampy, but we hadn't had rain, so I was okay. And so I was like, well, screw it. I was like, I'm, right. gonna, I'm just, I'm going to wear what I got. And went in and dude, I was so quiet. Just like exactly what you're saying. Like I was like, man. And so I actually started invest investigating like uh, a buddy of mine wears like these moccasins and that's legit why he wears them. Cause yes. he does, does a lot of spot and stock and he's like, they're super quiet. And he's like, and I won't yep. hunt without them. And so it made me start thinking, I was like, right. man, there should be a company that makes like Vans type skate shoes but like in boot format or like ankle support format that has like it's a little bit more rigid like around the foot so you don't get like beat up with briars and stuff like that but like the sole is that like flat right. super pl- flexible kind of skate shoe almost that kind of molds around the stuff you're walking across because that was the quietest quietest yeah. i ever walked in the woods
0: with Kizzik hands free shoes motion sounds something like this Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200
1: patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks.
2: Right, yeah. I, I've seen a few different products kind of going towards that now. There's. One that I just saw on Instagram, and it was some sort of lace-up moccasin like that. And then they've got, like, a certain one that goes, like, over the sole of your hiker boots, like, to make mm-hmm. them quiet or whatever. But yeah, even out, like, when we went to Colorado elk hunting, we had our hay dudes in our pack. So, like, uh, when Jeff and Jeff Rainey went, we went with him to Colorado, and he tagged mm-hmm. out on the elk, and him and Dylan... They engaged in a stock that evening and, you know, slipped their boots off, slipped their hey dudes on, did the stock. And it I mean, like like you said, it's a small detail. Right. But it's a it's a mm-hmm. big factor when sometimes when you're closing into like that red zone and like being a little extra quiet is really nice at that moment. You know, usually yeah. you, you think it's like, ah, whatever. But in that moment, you're like, OK, this is a big deal, you know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason why like a lot of dudes will take their, sh- their boots off and just go in their socks. I mean, whenever I was in Montana, last time I was in Montana, I was stalking a mule deer and I got close, but the only way I was what? able to get close was I took my boots off and just walked in my, just stalked in my socks. So I wasn't making noise, you know, cause it was that moment where just like when you need some wind for cover sound, like you don't get it you know what I mean? It was, it was that. And I was like, well, the only way that this is going to even possibly work out is like, is I got to be stupid quiet to even have an opportunity. And like I was, I was losing shooting light. So it was like a now or never thing. It wasn't like we could wait and watch him and try to figure it out. It was like, if I'm going to do it, I got to do it now.
2: Yeah. I've shot a lot of deer in my socks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome.
1: That's awesome. So you talk about controlling like the factors and like, you know, uh, being diligent with the details and stuff like that. And if, if things aren't right, like they're not right, you know, you don't, you don't, uh, you don't take a flyer essentially. So I'm curious, like, do you consider yourself to be aggressive or do you consider yourself to follow more the conservative side of your hunting approach?
2: I would say probably as aggressive <laughs> as possible, honestly. Um, it's kind of, it's, it's a very controlled aggression, but, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, once I, I I do a lot of like scout, 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 kill instead of hunting. Um, Mm -hmm. I'll be honest, like it doesn't matter what animal or I'm hunting or where I'm hunting or anything. I'm never just hunting. Like I'm either scouting or I'm in there because I know I'm going to kill that night, you know? So it's like, once I engage into the hunting part, like and I hang a kill set, it's usually extremely aggressive. Um, if possible, in range of that deer of where he's at, you know. So mm-hmm. that's I think public land's kind of forced me into that mindset probably, and it's definitely not necessary in every situation. But um, if I have factors line up to where I think I can kill in a day, you know, I'm, I'm going to do everything I can.
1: Right. Yeah. I guess like, so let me ask, let me ask this. Do you, when you, when you feel like you have a deer, not peg, but you feel like you have a good idea of what he's doing and it's time to kind of have that kill, that kill hunt, right. Where it's like, all right, I'm going in. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kill time. Yeah. Are you, you know, cause I know some guys I'm trying to figure out how I ask this. Some guys have the approach, you know, where it's like, okay, it's time to go kill. And it's either like kill or I'm going to booger him up, you know? And it's just like, I, it's the chance I have to take, you know, cause it's, this is the time to do it and everything's lined up and it's either going to work or he's going to win me, see me or whatever. It's like, I'm going to be so tight or so like so aggressive that it's, I'm either going to arrow him or he's going to know that I'm there. Like it's one of those two options. There's not an in between, in that if that happens and you're just like, all yeah. right, I'm on to the next deer or, or is it something different?
2: Like if I bugger him, is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah. Cause like, for example, like, you know, uh, like Zach Farrenball is probably like a good example of this, right? Like he's like, I'm going to just be aggressive. And when it's time to go kill that deer, I'm going to go kill that deer. And if I bump him, then I'm just going to go find another deer. Like I'm not, I don't care necessarily. It's like, about being super safe when it's the right time it's like i'm going in because i think i'm going to kill him and if i don't it's probably going to be a situation where he knows that i'm there and i'm and then i might just have to move on to the next deer you know um or the guys from like white tail adrenaline i know that they're very similar especially with their spot in stock where it's like i've got a big buck and i'm gonna try to kill him and when i get aggressive it's going for broke like it's either gonna work you know and i feel like it's gonna work you know things are set up to for it to work but it could also go sideways on me and I just have to be okay with it going sideways and and having to move on.
2: Yeah, I think, uh, I think bow hunting, you always have like a risk of things going sideways or busting that deer and stuff. But also something that I've learned is I, I try to study animals and I spend, I spend like year round, like watching at least deer if not traveling to other states and you know watching deer and in, in like multiple states while I'm traveling for shooting like every shoot that I travel to I scout my way there and scout my way back I don't care where it is or what part of the country it's in I'm I'm learning more about states on the way or the state that I'm in while I'm staying there and and watching deer and stuff and so I feel like I kind of lean on my strong like my strong suit on that is like reading a deer. So if I can watch him for an hour or watch him for an evening, and we even had this factor on, on the elk hunt this year, we found a giant bull and I got to watch him for like 40 minutes and just kind of read his mood, read what he's doing, watch what he did that morning where he headed to bed and stuff. And then I was able to map study after that and like, When we made a move on him, we made our way up the mountain. We found his wallows on the way. And I knew we were, like, between where he was feeding and where he was wallowing. And so we had, like, the right hillside he was staying on. And we got on him and got an arrow in him, like, that night, you know. So it's, like, that's kind of what I lean on on that. And I don't think think on public land you necessarily run the risk of, like, ruining your chances of that deer just because you bust him you know so like i i don't hunt the wrong wind or like I hunt on the side of the deer you know in whatever tree i can get in that favors the wind that night or you know if i don't have a wind that i even can hunt them in i'm gonna sit in like a observation set from way across the field or as far away as i can get from them and just watch him again and get more intel more reads on on that deer you know and so if i do like push a deer or he busts me on wind or whatever i'm just gonna like back up one step observe again re-find him you know figure out usually they have a secondary bedding area on public land like um my first buck on film i killed him off of a secondary bedding area because the night before we did a spot and stock on him and busted him. And I knew where his secondary bedding area was. And so we pushed him out of his main bedding area and feeding area and pushed him into his secondary. So we hung a set the next night and killed him right there in his secondary bedding area. Well, I knew about that secondary bedding area because duck season had opened like a few weeks prior. And I watched a bunch of duck hunters, like accessing to their duck hole, through like all his bedding pushed him out of there and then that evening he was in this secondary bedding so i was like okay that's intel that's good to know so when i busted him that night i was able to hang a set the next morning and the next evening and kill him in his secondary bed so they bucks always have a backup plan they've always got a place to go it's And usually on public land, they get pushed around so much, it's not going to be that far away, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. And they may even circle back and you can do a bump and dump, you know. So it's like, those are all aggressive tactics that are effective on public land because of how used they are to people, you know. So if you have like a private land bucks that never sees pressure and everything and you bust them, he he might go a ways because he's probably got a lot of options of where to go. But if a buck is used to living on high, like high pressure public, pretty good chance you can refine them and, and get back on him again.
1: Right. Dude, that's awesome. I love that. Like you watching the duck hunters and watching where he went, when he blew out of there, like where his little safe haven was. And then knowing yeah. that if I do the same thing, he's probably going to do the same thing. Cause he just see, he just knows pressure is pressure he doesn't equate it to like one that's trying to kill me. One's not, you know?
2: Right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And there's, I mean, any public land, especially in like this time of year, say like end of September, October and stuff, like when the weather's really nice, like there's not just going to be hunters on public land. I mean, there's all sorts of people that just Mm go hiking and, you know, nature watching photographers, like everything. So like, Deer get pushed around a lot and there's, there's no unpressured deer on public. So it's like, that's just a factor you can take and put it into your game for your advantage on that deer, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome, man. The, uh, and I I love that you, you scout like to like your competitions and stuff like that. That's such like a great advantage, like to try to just build Intel, like not just about like those places, but just, I've always talked to Tony Peterson about this, about like traveling to hunt is like in traveling to scout, even, you know, is the quickest way to kind of I always kind of say, build your mental Rolodex of like things that you've seen. Um, and it almost mm-hmm. like for me, it's almost created like spots where I've gotten to where I've had deja vu, where I've never been there before, but like, I see it. And I'm just like, Oh, this looks just like this spot. It happened to me when I was in Missouri, yeah. I was on this river bottom and I've never hunted river bottom in my life. And I got into this area and there was like a couple scrapes and i was relatively close to the water and just the way like the the land kind of laid out in there it felt like a swamp that i had hunted in pennsylvania i was like oh man this feels like like i've almost been here before and like i immediately knew where to set up and sure enough i i saw three bucks the so the next i left that evening because the wind was kind of wrong for that spot and we were just kind of scouting was the first day there and so i got out of there and came back in the morning and set up in that spot in the morning and saw three bucks like first thing in the morning and it was just because
0: i like I, mean, I knew
1: how to hunt it without having to like really know the spot, you know?
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a big deal. Is like, I, I purposely try to find properties that I can repeat factors that I'm confident in too. I mean, if you get good right. at a certain style of hunting and you can find that in another state, as long as it has the quality of bucks that you want, then you can hunt it. That's another thing you have to be careful of is if it doesn't, you've, gotta know when to move on to you know
1: right yeah so man i want to transition because we talked a little bit about you you shooting so how did you get into competitive archery like how did that kind of come about
2: um honestly from a pretty young age i got into shooting um like archery and honestly like rifles and pistols and all sorts of like tournament shooting and stuff whenever i was in probably like the fifth grade or so I, I joined a local 4-H and um, they were kind of going through the different things you could get into through 4-H and shooting was one of them and so my dad was always like a really good shot and would have like friendly competitions with friends and stuff so I kind of grew up with a bow and shooting it anyways but um, then I got into the competition side with 4-H and just kind of like local shoots and then we would go to like regional shoots and like from the get go I started winning a lot on those like winning every local shoot winning every regional shoot and then we started going to the state shoot and I was I was winning a lot or you know podium at least at state shoots and then by the time I got to high school there was opportunity to make like a state 4H state team and they take the top four in the state after tryouts to the national competition. And it's actually like, it's, I know 4-H like shooting sports isn't like well heard of, but there's a lot of talent there. There's like a lot of people that involved in that, Mm -hmm. a lot of talent, a lot of good shooters, a lot of good scores. And so, um, I did that in a few different disciplines, like with rifle shooting, pistol shooting. Um, the couple years I did, Pistol shooting, I, I broke my arm um, twice in high school and had like four reconstructive surgeries on it. So I spent most of three years in a cast. So I only only had one arm to, to deal with, so I just did like pistol shooting. But once I uh, semi-recovered from that, I started shooting bows again a little bit. And then my senior year, I was able to shoot my bow good enough to to make that team went to 4-H nationals and the team that I was on um, all four of us are professional level archers now Um, and we we ended up sweeping every every event as a team and then I ended up winning first place overall individual and my team we placed first second third and fifth um, individually and so that kind of like really sparked the competitiveness and stuff. And so um, after that, I kind of knew I had a skill set for it and started going to like some national level shoots, competing in that, um, started getting into the ASA circuit. I was kind of new to like 3D, but I, I shot indoor quite a bit and had some success with that. And uh, shot for a couple years doing like the, you know, national tournaments and stuff while I was in college and then after a couple of years I was able to work my way up to the professional level. So that's kind of how I got started into tournament side of things.
1: Nice. And you shoot for uh you shoot for Matthews, right?
2: Mhm. Yes, sir.
1: Nice. The uh and and you mentioned earlier that you 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 were working for Levi so I'm I'm, I'm curious did he uh how was uh working with him and I'm sure you you've shot with him. I've, I've, I've seen your posts and stuff like that. So what tidbits have you picked up from him who, you know, people consider to be the goat?
2: Yeah. Um, a lot. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I was able to, I, I actually, I still, to this day, don't know how I even got my number, but I was, I was prepping for a tournament one day and he texted me and he was like, Hey, this is Levi. I'm starting a, I'm going to do a pro staff for my TV show bow life and uh wanted to offer it to you first and see if you're interested in like filming and hunting and producing your hunts for the show. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. I'll do whatever it takes, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And so that's kind of how I got involved into that. And then on the competition side, I shot the, I shot the known side of ASA for a while, known pro. Um, and then this, this last year was my first year shooting like the unknown side which is what Levi shoots um so i soak up every bit that i can from him on that since he's <laughs> obviously the goat on it so um yeah I try to learn as much as i can and then um actually was able to go on a couple hunts like with him and Mike and go film for them some just running as a cameraman and trying to learn more about hunting side of it and stuff, cameras, media production right. and that, that sort of thing. But, um, yeah.
1: Nice. What, uh, cause I mean, I think when people think of like competitive archery, they, they, they obviously they see the obvious connection between that and hunting, right. Where it's like, it's, it's the same, you know, weapon, um, you know, similar types of, you know, skills required, you know, in, in, you know, all the normal things that people would think of if you're going to, you know, shoot target archery and, and, um, and then hunt with a bow. But I'm curious if there are any things that you've kind of discovered or any connections between, you know, shooting competitively and bow hunting that you didn't think were, that were maybe not as obvious connections that you kind of discovered as you kind of, as you went.
2: Um, I don't know about stuff that's maybe not as obvious because this might be an obvious factor. Maybe not. It's, it's hard for me to decipher since I kind of grew up in both worlds, but, uh, I'd say the biggest one is taking a shot under pressure. Um, learning how to execute through a shot under pressure, not blackout, not freak out, not, you know, let your subconscious, you know, take over and like punch a trigger, not look, you know, do pre-ignition movements, you know, target panic type of deal. So, uh, being able to execute a shot under pressure is something that you learn pretty quickly in target archery or you fail miserably (laughs) in that world. So, uh, that transfers, that transfers right over into, you know, shooting, uh, trophy animal under pressure, especially like a long range shot or, um, kind of a split second deal and being able to execute a really good shot, um, in those situations is something that you learn a lot and get to practice all the time when you're shooting tournaments.
1: Right. So I'm curious, man, like, cause you were just saying like, you know, if you get the yips, for example, right. <laughs> might be one way to say it. You know, in, in archery, it's like it's a, yeah. it's a bad deal for competition, right? Same thing whenever you're trying to kill an, kill an animal. And so I'm imagining that, you know, if you do anything for any length of time, right, like doesn't matter how good you are, whether you're a quarterback, a golfer, an archer or whatever, it's like you you eventually will hit a run of just like where things just aren't working for whatever reason. You hit a rut, right, where it's like, yeah. man, I'm just, I'm just this much off every time, you know? And so I'm curious, yeah. like, if you've had that in archery to where you've been able to use that, how you get yourself out of a funk on a hunt, if there's a parallel there.
2: Um, yeah, a, a little bit. It's a, it's a little different with archery because it's so kind of personal on what you're working through. And it's usually like form and accuracy related. Whereas a hunt, it's more of like, think outside the box, you know, outsmart the animal, outsmart the person you're hunting against, um, try to figure out what factors you can gain. I guess it, it, it has a lot of similarities to like the unknown side of archery. I guess I could compare it to that. So like on the unknown side, you, you're guessing the yardage of the target, you're shooting that 3D target and, and there's a lot of like risk reward in the ASA side because you've Mm -hmm have like an upper and lower 12 ring. So if you have like the 10 ring here, you've got the lower like down here and the upper up here, you know? So mm-hmm. like if I'm shooting at the lower and I I judge this like a yard or two um, closer than what it actually is. So if it's a yard or two farther than my guess and I hit below it, I'm mm-hmm. going to shoot an eight or a five and that's going to like, really hurt my score a lot you know so um it's really a game of trying to hit the give your chance give yourself a chance at hitting a 12 but also stay in the 10 the whole time so that's a that's something that you have to like factor a lot of things into and a lot of decisions it's it's a lot of making good decisions Uh, making good judgments and that sort of thing and it's something I'm still learning and everything but I'd say it's pretty similar to to hunting as far as how many factors go into it and how many things you have to consider in order to make a really good decision say if you're hunting a mature buck and he's in an area that you know he's been consistent in um, but maybe he's coming out into the field from different areas on different winds and stuff it's like you got to consider a lot of factors to choose the exact tree that you need to be in to not get busted, but have a chance to have him in range, you know? So I'd say there's kind of some similarities that, um, you're practicing that puzzle mindset, um, mm-hmm. in tournament archery that can transfer to bow hunting.
1: Yeah. Just, I, I think like what I'm picking up from that is just like the, you're thinking of in the, In the unknown, right, is more like shot strategy, right? Like, because.
2: Yes. Because of the risk
1: reward, right? It's, you know, where it's like in the known side, it's like, I know what the yardage is. I just need to be clean on my form, my release. Like, I need to be technically sound. Where the other part is like. Yes. If I'm consistently guessing short on my yardage, I'm probably going to aim for the high 12. And if I'm slightly off, Mm -hmm. then I'm still going to be in the 10, but I'm going to probably not ever hit the 12. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, you know, you're just going to be, you're trying to thread a needle.
2: Yeah. Right. Or, you know, in that situation, say you're guessing two yards cold that day, you can aim at uppers and put your biggest number on it, you know? So that gives you a fixes your problem and keeps you safe and gives you a chance at the 12 is <laughs> kind of right all the factors that we're trying to do at once you know <laughs> nice nice yeah
1: it's like that's the r- no risk it no biscuit i guess right is the is the idea there yeah, yeah. yeah. nice man so let's let's transition into into your hunting season from last year because i know you launched a youtube channel which was awesome I, you know i follow you on instagram so i saw you you mm-hmm. were launching that and i got to watch I know you just dropped the premiere today for another hunt. I think it's a velvet hunt if I'm not mistaken. Um, but I got a chance to watch your first one, uh, video that you dropped, um, which was a swamp buck that was just, was a hammer, um, in a super cool hunt. So I guess talk to me a little bit about your 2022 season and just a little bit about the YouTube channel, what you have going on there.
2: Uh, yeah, 2022, I, we had a good year. Um, I did a lot of preparation into a lot of states and tried to create as much efficiency as possible for tagging out. Um, and we ended up getting on a few animals that were even higher than what our standards were for that area, which kind of goes back into like e-scouting and my process on that, on getting into to good parts of each state, you know, but um, we had a strong September. We Went on our first high country mule deer hunt in Colorado. Didn't have much luck there. And so we kind of switched gears, didn't find many deer there. So we went to Nebraska to a place that I had hunted the year before me and Dylan both tagged out there in two days, uh, came back home. Uh, Jace invited me to come to Kentucky where he was hunting that deer that he ended up killing last year, 187 mm-hmm. inch public land deer and uh we only had like two days to go there but we decided why not do that we're we're already prepared for missouri we spent all summer scouting our our home state so let's go spend those two days hunting um instead of just prepping for missouri so we went went to kentucky tagged out there in one day on that swamp hunt um which was you can go to the YouTube to watch it, but it's kind of like an efficiency strategy on on how we approach that whole deal uh, to try and get on a good quality buck as quickly as possible. It's a little different approach than what I usually do. Usually I've got like one specific buck picked out and I got to like really pattern him, really read him, try to figure out how to kill that buck. And when we went to Kentucky, it was like, okay, we're going to like mix all our factors and try to just get on a good buck as quickly as possible it doesn't matter which one just a good buck you know and we were able to tag out there came back to missouri hunted five days in missouri tagged out here went to illinois and shot the buck that i had scouted in illinois driving back and forth from the asas all summer i had found a really cool buck there and shot him on the second day of season and actually had like One bean plant stem that came up, and my arrow hit that bean stem and it deflected it upwards. And we were pretty high in the tree, instead of going down through his vitals, it went through like the no man's land angled upward. So that kind of uh, put a halt to the streak we had going. Um, We spent, I think, six days looking for that deer just to make sure he wasn't dead somewhere. called out a dog tracker, one of the best dog trackers in the nation. He spent two days with us looking. It's just kind of like, I know it happens bow hunting, but like anytime, like there's a non-lethal shot, I just, I take a lot of extra time and a lot, put a lot of miles on just to make sure that deer's not, you know, dead or findable to, to kill, you know, we ended up finding that deer and he was okay, but he was on private at that point. Um, so we couldn't pursue him anymore. So we ended up on a 17 day hunt in Illinois because we had to relocate a different buck to hunt during the October lull. And we finally, we finally found another buck after spending that much time looking for the first one that I shot, located him and got him killed. Um, so that was most of October November I was able to tag out on a really big my biggest mule deer ever in Kansas with Jeff Rainey and then we went to Nebraska and shot a couple more mule deer that kind of rounded out the year I think but yeah we hunted in a blizzard in December in in Nebraska for quite a few days that's probably the that was probably the craziest hunt of the year actually we, we spent a lot of days hunting in like a 35 mile an hour straight crosswind blizzard that shut down interstates and stuff. And, uh, we grinded through that for a lot of days and we were doing stocks on like groups of like 60 deer. And so that was really difficult, really cold, uh, kind of a hard (laughs) hunt. And that one's probably going to be the coolest YouTube episode from that season actually. But, um, Yeah, we had a
0: good year. That's just kind of a
2: summary of how everything went, you know.
0: The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to keepitfunohio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.
1: Yeah, man, that's a that's a killer here. That's a lot of that's a lot of tags filled, man. Yeah. Um so that hunt yeah. in, in yeah. Illinois, when you when you were trying to locate another another buck, right? Because it you know, whenever I hear um Cause so I know I've been talking to Jason and stuff like that. Like he's oftentimes looking for a visual and it sounds like, you know, when I talk to him and I talk to Austin and now I'm talking to you, it's like, you guys have a lot of similarities in, in terms of how you guys approach finding a deer, you know? Yeah. You guys are all very like yeah. strategic. You guys are often looking for a visual. You want to watch that deer, right? Like there's a lot of similarities that I, that I see between the three of you. And when I think about places like, you know, certain areas of Missouri that I was in, you know, was able to hunt or like, you know, especially like Kansas or something like that, you know, visuals, I don't want to say it's easy, but like, you know, Missouri, you've got some fields and things like that that you can use to kind of glass and try to figure out, okay, is there a buck here that I want to kill? Okay. There's one I can watch him maybe for a day or two, especially, you know, earlier part of the season when they might still be hitting the, hitting the food sources and stuff like that. You know, when you get into States like Illinois, where, you know, and I've never hunted Illinois public, so I don't really know how it's, comprised and what the makeup of it is but for me like in PA like a lot of the public you know there's not food sources that are necessarily around like so glassing one you know mm-hmm. um in finding one that way is not really gonna not really gonna work in most instances it's gonna have to be like get boots on the ground try to find an area that deer are wanting to use an area and then maybe spend some time in that area and just watch watch deer and you might not see a buck but you might just see directionally where deer are headed Right. And then you start to move a little closer and like over the course of two or three days, then you might finally see one and be like, okay, I'm in the right general area. So I'm curious how, like how you broke down Illinois, like what your approach was to that when you maybe don't have like, and it was, you know, middle of October. So it's not like bean fields were in play and stuff like that. Like you're really talking about, they're now starting to hit like that browse. And especially if there's any acorns that are left over and stuff like that. And so they're not being super visible.
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, I know that there's a lot of controversy over whether the October lull is a thing or not but I'll tell you right now there's there's exceptions to everything because each buck has its own personality and I mm-hmm. you know I see bucks that travel in daylight all the time year round and then I see bucks that like in the summertime they bed out in the beans and they lay in their bed and eat like they don't move at all. So it's like, there's a lot of personality factors on that, but most bucks in general are going to have October lull and like not move far from their bed if at all, you know? So, um, it was really like, get out and find them. I mean, we are we were there for 17 days and we covered a lot of ground and I knew we were in a good area because I scouted it over the summer and I knew there's, good bucks on several different properties so it's like i know they didn't just uh, like all of them up and leave like some of them might move around or leave or go to private Mm -hmm. or whatever but i didn't i knew all of them and so it was really just a factor of like where are you hiding like what what do i need to do to find where you're hiding and like what you're feeding on and whatever that took is what we did i mean we put boots on the ground we This is more aggressive than most people are willing to do. But we would like walk through bedding areas with the wind in our favor, you know, in the middle of the day. And it's like if I jump a buck up, he just knows that something jumped him. He didn't smell me. He didn't like see that I'm a human usually because, you know, usually if you if I jump one up in some thick stuff, I'm going to get down immediately to where he can't see me. Um, Josh Trolinger did the same exact thing on public land in Kansas last year and shot a 200 inch typical it's a number one buck master buck in the books now nice. and he literally like walked through like the CRP patch uh, along this like creek bottom jumped this buck up immediately got down he had the wind in his favor and like Josh is like looking at him through the grass and this buck has like no idea that that was a human and so then the mm-hmm. buck like moseys off Josh is able to pull off a bump and dump and like scout the area, look at like the factors that this buck's using in there and then get the heck out of there. But then he knew exactly where he needed to get into exactly where he needed to hang a set, exactly what this buck was doing and all those factors. And like, is it aggressive? Yes. Does it work? Absolutely. You know? So Mm -hmm. that's something that I did a lot in Illinois was like walk through areas, look, look for sign, um, I, I, my like favorite thing to do is the visual thing. You know, I love to climb like 40 foot in a tree or get on a high spot or drive around and stand on top of my truck or whatever it takes to like lay eyes on a deer. That's my favorite thing to do. Um, And like when me, Austin and Jace met, that was something we were all kind of learning to do. But Austin and Jace grew up, you know, hunting like really thick stuff, really like non-visual type of things. And so Jace is like really huge on tracks and reading tracks. And like, it's not a hundred percent accuracy cause you can have a big mature buck with a small hoof or you can have a dink with a big hoof, you know, but it's pretty consistent. And so like, I learned a lot from him on reading tracks and, and I've learned a lot from my dad on like reading scrape and scrapes and scrape lines and fresh sign all that sort of thing so like at the same time I'm walking through these areas where these bucks might be hiding and I might jump one up I'm reading sign at the same time and being able to just put one more factor into play each day and get get a little bit closer to a buck and you know maybe in the morning and evening I'm hanging observation sets in case they do move and I do see them and then Every minute of the afternoon, I'm walking, boots on the ground, looking at sign and stuff. So it's just, just keep going and keep going and keep going until you find what you're looking for. I'm not going to waste my time hunting every day um, when yeah. I can be scouting and really figuring out what's going on.
1: Dude, that right there, what you just said, I'm not going to waste my time hunting. Like that is yeah, like, perfect. You know what I mean? Because it's like, because people think of it the opposite, right? It's like, especially when you're traveling out of state, like that's one of my favorite things to do. A little different in Kansas where, you know, I can see, so I do a lot of driving, you know, and I'll drive it in glass and just try to see if I can see something along the road. You know what I mean? It might be a couple hundred yards away, but, you know, just get a visual of like, okay, there's a good buck on this piece of walk-in. All right. So I know he's there. And if I can watch him for a little bit, then I do. If not, you know, then I'll figure out if I have to drive around the other side or Maybe I'll walk into a high point and try to glass or whatever. But, you know, um, when I was in Iowa, that's ha- kind of how I hunted Iowa. Like every day I would just walk and find sign and try to kick mm-hmm. up a deer, you know, and, you know, mm-hmm. kick up a buck and be like, all right, cool. There's a buck here. All right. Let's see if we can figure out what he's doing. And that was actually uh- how I ended up kicking my buck. It was, I didn't call it a bump and dump. I bumped him of his bed the, the, the day prior. And it, I didn't come back in in the morning because the wind wasn't right. The wind was shifting throughout the day. And I went in mid-afternoon and hunted him on the last day of the trip and he walked back in to that area just thought he had the wind in his favor and i was just cutting it just right and and stuck him at like 15 yards but it was that same approach where it's like man i just spent that whole trip walking and trying to bump deer just trying to find them you know i was like if i can find pockets of them then i know i'm in the right area you know
2: yeah and i can't i don't blame people for like wanting to hunt like you show up to a state or you show up to an area or you find this spot people get so attached to spots it's it's frustrating to me because it's like just because a spot or a property looks perfect doesn't mean there's a big buck on it you know Um, Mm -hmm. and I think people get really caught up in that and I don't blame them because it's it's fun you know like I want to I want to go hang my saddle on a tree 20 foot up on the edge of a bean field and see what comes you know but yeah. that's not like the efficient way to do it. I could pick I could pick fifty spots on a property that look <clears throat> good or are a good spot or you know might have decently fresh sign, but I could hunt fifty different spots for fifty different days and never fill a tag, you know. So it's like yeah. I've gotta really narrow down what exactly a buck that I'm wanting to shoot and is the age and quality that I want to pursue and figure out exactly what he's doing so I can put a set right where I need to on him.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: That's awesome, man. Like I love that approach. And when, as soon as you said, you know, I'm not going to waste time hunting when I can scout, like that's like the perfect mindset, you know, especially when you're hunting public. Cause everything, yeah. cause things change all the time. Pressure changes, you know, more people today, less people tomorrow, you know, people entering from this area versus entering from this area tomorrow. Like it's just, and so you constantly, you kind of have to constantly be reevaluating the situation and figuring out exactly what the hunt requires. You know, it's not a, it's not a, I did oh, yeah. my homework and now I go here.
2: For sure. Yep. Yeah.
1: Man, I want to transition now quickly to your Colorado hunt, man. Cause I was, again, I follow along, you know, with what you got going on and, uh, you and I were messaging each other cause trying to set up a time to get together to podcast. Like as you were getting ready to leave, I think for that trip. And so, you know, when you were in service or whatever, and you were able to make some posts where I was following along just to see how things were going. And you mentioned earlier that you found that, you know, that bull and, um, you know, were able to kind of figure out what he was doing because you you observed him for like a little while and stuff like that. But, uh, and it didn't, wasn't a happy, wasn't a happy ending. Right. But what did you learn from, from that hunt?
2: I learned that elk can duck arrows really good. (laughs) Um, I had no idea. I I had no idea that they could duck like that. Um, It was a long shot, but like, I mean, he ducked like 20 inches. We, we replayed the video so many times and, you know, held a pin on, on the video of like where his vitals were and then where they weren't by the time my arrow made impact. And it's like, man, I didn't know. I didn't know didn't know that and if he wouldn't have ducked at all i mean it would have smoked him and he would have probably went 100 yards and died you know but that's not how hunting works so um it was a pretty unfortunate situation we we created a lot of efficiency on that hunt and i don't know elk very well but you know we just put a put together each factor that we could as we got closer and closer and kind of did the same tactic that we're talking about on uh on whitetail on that illinois hunt you know just ease through areas try to find out we got into elk we found this really really big bull i mean like i don't know elk very well but we we showed people who did know elk and he's like a bull of a lifetime for shooting in a over-the-counter unit especially on public land he's just like the quality that's not even supposed to be there so it was wow. really crazy to, like, get an opportunity of a, at a bull like that, and it was even harder to, like, play him at his game, especially me not knowing how elk work and how they think and stuff. I just tried to do the best I could with what I did know. And so mm-hmm. we worked our way in through this creek bottom, found his wallows, and we are at, like, 10,000 feet or, like, 9,800 And he was feeding in a valley up high that was like 11,000. So it was like a thousand foot difference, you know. And I was like, okay, so he's probably bedding somewhere on this hillside in between because he's obviously coming down to this creek bottom to wallow in water. And he's going up here to feed because I watched him that morning before. And so we approached our way up. And when we got to like 10,900 and we were really close to this valley in the evening i was like the wind is not picking up like crazy today he's probably in this meadow on top feeding and so um, we ripped three bugles before we got there and then we cut half our distance to the edge of the meadow and as soon as we peeked around like the last pine tree into the meadow there he stood like right there looking (laughs) for the bugles you know and i immediately glassed him and could tell it was him. And I was like, Oh my gosh, this worked, you know, <laughs> and the intensity like <laughs> went to an all time. And so, um, we were able to get an arrow in him. I executed as good of a shot as I could. It actually took me probably a solid two minutes to like prepare myself for that shot and like make sure I could clear these limbs that were in, in front of him, you know? And, like, pick out a hole, make sure my range was right, glass, and pick a spot out to aim at on him. And, like, there's a lot of factors to, to taking a long-range shot, you know. And, man, I executed a really good shot, and he just ducked so far. And it hit him, like, like, high, like, between the spine and the liver. We don't really know if it hit liver or not, but it was, like, below the spine. It seemed like... Um, seemed like liver blood whenever we, you know. Hold on, just a second. Yeah, you're good. I'm on a podcast. Uh, seemed like liver blood when we tracked him the next day. Um, but I don't know. That, that's why yeah. I, that's kind of why I spent like seven days afterwards searching for him is because. Like we had to, we had to leave like two days after I shot him because Jeff had to get back to Kansas to start hunting whitetail and stuff, and so we went back to Wichita, and then I drove to like Kansas City and drop my cameraman off, Dylan. Um, he's got like a a family and kids and stuff, and he needed to get back to them, and then I I didn't even make it home because I I live like quite a ways east of Kansas City, and I like dropped him off in Kansas city, met his girlfriend there. And I drove through the night back to Colorado (laughs) and immediately went back (laughs) to work. And like, I, I blood trailed. I like zigzagged all across, you know, that meadow and all across the mountainside and the next mountainside. And I think the last day I did 12 miles was 6,400 foot of elevation change. And the last few days that I was there, I was actually following pros around Um, because Jeff had shot a bull, and, like, those mountain crows were, like, all over it. Like, there was, like, Mm -hmm. 40 of them on it. And so, like, for several miles each way of, like, where I shot him, I'm, like, following crows around all day and just trying to see if they're on anything. And I'm convinced he didn't die, um, because I think if he would have died, there would have been crows on him, and I would have found him within those seven days, especially with the miles that I put on, but it was just kind of one of those things I'd, I would rather put the time in and feel good about him living or me finding him dead than to carry on hunting in a different state or trying to, trying to fill the tag on a different bull. I passed on a lot of bulls after that. Um, I could, I could have went and like pursued quite a few bulls in those seven days that I looked for him and for sure got one killed, but I just wanted to see if I could find that one dead or alive, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's awesome, man. A lot of people wouldn't have done that. So, you know, kudos to you like for <laughs> honoring the beast, you know, and, and putting in your yeah. your time and, you know, passing up those, you know, those other bulls. Um, but with that being said, man, you did come back to Missouri and things kind of worked out.
2: <laughs> yeah 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 did. so it, tell me about that, that, that dude that was that's, a, that's and... a hammer dude yeah man that that deer is uh the same one i was talking about earlier when i really got serious into bow hunting he was he's that deer is kind of the reason for he's just an absolute giant his five-year-old year and i found him on public land and i watched him all summer and our season opens the 15th and I did a stock on him September 18th of 2020 and shot him at 32 yards and he was quartering away and I was shooting, I won't say the brand, but like a fixed blade that you should not shoot. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) I shot him quartering away and I hit him behind the shoulder and it exited like in his brisket and it hit like a one lung hit. And I had good lung blood for like 350 yards and it's like we found a bed. We, we just backed out and didn't go till the next like mid morning. Um, and found a bed less and less blood, no blood. And that was like the first deer I'd ever lost. I, I feel like we're talking about a bunch of lost animals, but like, it's, it's really (laughs) part of it. And so I searched, I searched for 30 days for him and uh spent a lot of time just i was sick i like it was before i was filming it was before i was like trying to fill tags in a lot of states so it was like my season was all about that deer and so like i just spent my time searching um and then like in november of that year i got a text from a buddy who has private land nearby that public land that i shot him on and he had one game camera picture of that deer. And he was like, is this the one that you shot? And I was like, yeah, hundred percent is. And he was like, I saw him from my stand yesterday. And he was like, I didn't realize it was a buck that you had shot. But regardless, like he was limping around and he had like lost some weight and stuff, but he was getting around and he was pushing does around. And he said he watched that deer dodge three different trail cameras. Like the does would run in front of the trail camera and he would like stop and like go around the tree. And I was like, man, this deer is just on a different level of intelligence. And I don't, I don't know why he always was that way. But, um, my buddy like got a chance or he thought a chance to like shoot that deer that night. And he was at like 25 yards and he drew back and he like, you know, did a met for him to stop. And the deer like took another like five steps and like stopped behind a cedar tree and then looked at him and busted. Mm. And I was like, man, this is just crazy. And so that was in 2020, 2021. I found him again, watched him over the summer and he moved on to private before opening day. And so I never got an opportunity at him that year. 2022 um which this episode is about to drop um i had had him found he was on public but he was staying in the corn and he was like very rarely would come out of that corn and so i was in like a tree 42 foot up in the air looking over Mm -hmm. this corn on like this one trail on the edge of it Um, and we had a buck come in like right at last light and it was really hard to tell, um, if it was him or not. And this was like September 20th. And, uh, I like glassed him. I saw a strong G4. I saw similar features and he had like this Roman nose, which was kind of like the feature on ghosts. This, this deer, I was hunting that I always identified him by, you know, every year. And Mm -hmm. so this deer came in, we shot him, I was like, I don't know if it's ghost, but I would rather shoot this deer on a chance that it is ghost and like let him walk by and it, it's him, you know, shot him, recovered him. It wasn't him. And so um, I told my buddy Jeff Rainey, this deer is seven years old at this point. And so I was tagged out. I was like, Jeff, you need to go kill this deer. I was like. It's his seven-year-old year. year. I'm not convinced he's even going to stay on public anymore. I'm not convinced I'm going to even see him the next year. He gets more and more elusive every time. I spend my whole summers just trying to put eyes on him. I only put eyes on him one time that whole summer. And Jeff went in and started hunting him, and Jeff was there until October 2nd, so 17 days, and Ghost slipped by him in range two different times and jeff is like jeff is a like one of the best shooters in the world right now and an absolute stone cold killer when a deer's in range and like for a deer to slip by him is just insane you know and so jeff ended up shooting a different deer we called big twin he's a 188 inch deer just an absolute stud and yeah on public and so he tagged out on him on october 2nd and so goes lived on (laughs) so this year um was his eight-year-old year year, and something that i've learned from a there's a guy that i live nearby his name is adam wolf and he knows more about whitetail than anybody i've ever met in my life and the amount of like old mature deer, like past the age of six, seven, eight, nine years old that he's had like intel on and studied over the years is insane. And so I, I try to like take in as much as I can from him. And something that he told me was like, once a buck reaches like eight years old and older, they really start like settling down and really like staying in one area. And so I actually only went and checked in on ghost, three times this summer and every time he was in the same spot and he was very elusive. Like I would drive as close as I could in glass from a long ways away. And as soon as my vehicle would stop, I would like glass him up on a red moon night. I would only go on red moon nights and he would like see my truck and stand there for like 30 seconds and then lay down right where he was and he would not stand up for the rest of the evening. He would just stay bedded, stay hidden, like anytime my truck was visible. And then like the last time that we saw him over the summer was the day before season. Um, we actually went and hung a set, watched him, got some footage of him and everything. And that was September 14th of this year. So September 15th, we hunted, didn't see him, dealt with a lot of pressure and people. September 16th in the morning, um, we were able to spot him bedded in the beans actually he got he got like pushed out of like actual bedding and was laying in the beans and uh at like 9 30 that morning and we're we're in a set I think like 36 foot near spotted spotted his rack pulled our set like circled around the other side of him hung our set 60 yards from him while he's bedded it was like really quiet out so we really had to take our time and that was probably like the most nerve-wracking thing i've ever done <laughs> on like a deer of that intelligence and setting up a set that close to him but hung a set at 60 yards he stood up at like 10 30 and i was able to get a range on him at 61 and a half but he just like turned around in his bed and laid back down and so i set my sight and we just sat there and waited so from he didn't stand up again until 1 30 p.m and when he stood up again i already had my sight set and we kind of like saw him like lift his head up and so we got like cameras rolling everything ready and then like when he stood up i think within 20 seconds we had an arrow in him and then i think by like 30 seconds he was down and dead in the field so Dang. it was a very surreal moment like we me and Dylan sat back in our saddles and were just like quiet for 30 minutes. It was like, usually you have like all this excitement and we, we did it type of deal, but that was like surreal. Like we just killed the unkillable deer, you know?
1: Right. That's crazy, man. Like I saw pictures of it, of course, like hammer buck and um, I was stoked for you, especially after what happened in, in Colorado and stuff. Um, but what, uh, what did he score? Cause I think you said it was your biggest deer to date, wasn't it?
2: Yeah. Um, he's one sixty four and three eights. Nice. Yeah. That's a hammer dude. And
1: an old deer. That's crazy, man.
2: Yeah. Eight if that, if that don't public, get you fired he's, up. He's
1: yeah. There's uh, a, yeah, yeah, there's old deer on public. That one is,
2: that one's cool. Yeah,
1: for sure, man. That's cause I'm thinking there's one deer that I have on camera. Now this will be the third year that I've kind of known of him and have like kind of watched him. It's in the mountains he's in He's in the mountains. Um, in this year, the first year I found him, he was either three and a half or four and a half. Like I wasn't like, I couldn't tell, but he was, he was a big bodied deer and like his rack, like he had plenty of bone. Um, just not that that means anything for age, but just like he was a big body. He was the overall big deer. And I was like, Four and a Mm -hmm. half, but maybe he's three and a half and he's just kind of fooling me. But in the mountains, like at least what I've kind of gathered, it's like, man, when they're big, they're usually older because there's not, it's not like there's a bean field around for him to get fat on. Like he's getting big on acorns and brows, essentially, you know what I mean? Um, and, uh, And I have him again this year. And so he's either, he's either six and a half or seven and a half this year. And I bumped him last wow. year. I got within, I, I went to set up and I got, I, I didn't, in a million years, I thought he was bedded along this cut and that's, and I found like a scrape line that I thought was his. And the only reason I thought it was his, is because like, I just, like every video I ever got of him, like at a scrape, like he's the only one who aggressively worked it and would lay down on like a rub and a scrape, like in the same spot. And so I found this like scrape line that had some rubs like associated with it. And I saw him there the year previously on camera, like toward the end of October. And this was like October 22nd, mm. I think is the day that I hunted him. And I just kind of happened to found like aggressive rubs, like where it's like almost like not rubs, but where you could just see where he was gouging the tree with like his brow tines. You know what I mean? And that was it. Just like ramming his head into yeah. it. And, and it just, and right. there was like a couple scrapes that were opened up and they were like fresh, like brand new. And so I ended up coming in the next morning to hunt him there. And I assumed he was bedded off this cut that was maybe like a hundred yards away. And so I figured like, if I set up on this bench, I was like, he's going to work his way through here. Cause this is the way, this is where the dough bedding is. It's behind me. I was like, he's just going to kind of work his way through here. Cause usually he's on the other side. Like there's like a road that's nearby and like a mountain on the other side. And it's like, usually he spends his time over there. It's like, so I imagine he's just going to kind of like loop around and head back over. And so that's why I set up where I set up. And so I was right. climbing the tree in the morning and I got up on one stick and I just heard and looked and saw just antlers going through the brush and cracking brushes he's running through. And I was only like 40 yeah. yards from him. Like I set up right where oh, I wanted to set up yeah. and I had no, in a, in a million years, I would have never thought that he bedded where he bedded. I, I always assumed he was like another hundred yeah. yards or so away from me and I was clear, but he was right there. That was the story of my, my year last year. Bucks bucks to to last year. That happened to be there.
2: Go yeah. ahead. Uh, that's how big bucks get a lot of their advantages betting somewhere that nobody thinks that they would bet. You know.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But that's how I. That was the story of my season last year. Was that one happened and I had a deer bed. One of the deer I was trying to kill bedded forty yards from me, downwind of a scrape, and I watched him bed for two hours, and he just got up and walked out of my life. And then the one Mm. in Kansas, I I glassed the first day I was there and ended up, he was with a doe. And so I figured he was going to be with her for a couple of days. And I kind of lost track of him, like, but I figured he would come back around. Like once he got off that doe and once he bred her. And so the last day of the hunt, I went to this spot and I was headed to like this particular tree to set up on the ground. And we, we literally got at the same tree at the same time. Like went in with no lamp, you know, like just, just use moonlight. And like, i crested up over this draw or up out of the draw. And I just stopped for a minute and I heard deer moving around and I won't go into the details of the story. Cause everyone who listens to the show has heard it a couple of times, but more of the story was that he was right behind the tree. I was trying to get to, and I could see him like skylit. And then I sat there for no, It was like 10 minutes or whatever it was, 15 minutes maybe of him like snort wheezing at another buck that was off to my right and snort wheezing at me. And like, just like, he was pissed. He thought it was another buck. Cause I had, to, yeah. I had the dark draw to my back. So he couldn't see me, but I could see him moving. And I just right. could never get enough light to know that I was going to be able to miss all the saplings he was standing in and around because I'd been in there like a couple of days prior, so I kind of knew there was some debris around and that he needed to be at a certain spot for me to get right. a clean shot. So,
2: yeah. <clears throat> so yeah, that was
1: that was the, the story of my life last year. It was like right place, wrong time, or right place, right time, just wrong situation. <laughs> but right, yeah yeah but uh well cool man i know we've been chatting here for getting close to an hour and a half man. i want to be sensitive to your time and let you get some of your evening back but man i appreciate you coming on before i let you get out of here dude let people know where they can watch these uh these hunts you have filmed and uh where they can follow along with you to to, to keep up with you during the the uh during this season
2: yeah so the uh youtube is hunter hogan productions um so we'll be dropping episodes We'll be dropping hunts every two weeks and then i'm going to try and drop like a video every week whether it's like how to do a european mount how to score a deer like setting up a bow mm-hmm. um, all those sort of things on those in between weeks between hunts and stuff but yeah we've got a lot of hunts to drop a lot of really cool content um and then as far as like day-to-day hunts and keeping up with this year's season um, i post a lot on my story on instagram and try to keep up pretty heavy with that as we mobile hunt through the season. So that's uh, Bo Life Hogan um, is Instagram handle on that.
1: Awesome, brother. Well, good luck to you this year. You're off to a good start, man. I'm going to be following along, and uh, maybe if I finish up things early in Kansas, maybe I'll I'll swing by Missouri and pay you a visit.
2: Yeah, there you go. Sounds good. Appreciate it. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. And
1: if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And while you're at it, head over to YouTube and give us a sub there as well. I'd be super appreciative if you do those couple things for me. And before I shut this thing down, we need to give a big shout-out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Exodus Outdoor Gear, and Genesee Beer. And until next time, we'll see y'all.